You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. If you're looking for something new and scary, check out the horror podcast, Scared to Death. Scared to Death is over 150 episodes of demonic possessions, hauntings, shadow people, and more. Join me, Dan Cummins, as I try to scare my wife, Lindsay, each and every week with dark tales from around the world. Then comes the best part of the show when I, Lindsay, get back at Dan with listener-submitted horror stories, often the scariest part of the show. New episodes drop every Tuesday night. Available anywhere you listen to podcasts, and you can also watch us on YouTube. Get scared to death. Hi, I'm Annie in Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you're listening to your favorite international podcast. You just heard the promo for Scared to Death, hosted by Lindsay and Dan. Just like us, they are at their 200th episode. I mean, we're not yet there, but next week. Next week. There's a lot of backlog for you to go through. Every week, Dan tells his wife, Lindsay, terrifying tales of the macabre and paranormal kind. Are they true? Well, you will need to listen to find out. Go check out Scared to Death. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please leave them a rating or even better, a review and tell them we sent you. Uh, I just listened to one where Dan was talking about Czech Unterweger. Perfect pronunciation, by the way, Dan. All right. We only have a couple of things to mention before we jump into today's episode. Hi, buddy. Opus is home today. So this is one of, we've decided that it's, we think he's mature enough to be at home and just relaxing when I'm recording. So fingers crossed that this all goes well, but you might hear him. First of all, we want to wish a very, very happy belated birthday to Tanya McDonald in South Africa. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Tanya's birthday was on Wednesday, but because we switched our release date to Friday, We can now only send you a happy, happy belated birthday today. We hope you are having the most amazing birthday week. And Tanya, also give your amazing sister a hug from us because she's the one who reached out and asked us to say hi. So happy birthday, girl. Alles Gute. Second, please don't forget to vote for us in the first round of the People's Choice Podcast Awards. Go to podcastawards.com, register, and please verify your email. It only takes a minute and your data is not used in any way. They will not spam you or anything like that. You can vote for us in the categories True Crime, Female Hosted, History, and People's Choice. And please also check that little box that asks if you want to be considered for final voting. That would be absolutely awesome. It really would be. We would be so, so grateful. And last but not least, a huge shout out to our Patreon patrons. You are our primary source of monetary support for the show. It actually costs us money to make this show. And Mm. thanks to you, we are no longer going into debt trying to create this show for you each week. So thank you. And if you want to know more about Patreon or other ways you can support us, please just listen to the end. We'll get more into it then. And I think now it's time to talk about the Austin axe murders, or as many of us are more familiar with the term uh, for this case, the so-called servant girl annihilator, which mm, it is problematic. 
If you haven't listened to last week's episode, please go and do that now so that you'll have all of the very fascinating and gruesome information. For everyone who listened last week already but needs a quick reminder, Johanna is going to give us a very quick recap. Yes, so in the 1880s, Austin was ridden with crime, nocturnal marauders were roaming the nightly streets of the Texan capital, breaking into homes, threatening people at gunpoint, and robbing them of their money. But there was one criminal who would overshadow all of them, the servant girl Annihilator. He was made responsible for the attack and murder of several people, many of them African-American servants. Last week we talked about some of his victims. On the night of 30th of December 1884, Molly Smith, who was 25 at the time, was the victim of a murder. Her live-in boyfriend, Walter Spencer, suffered severe injuries. Two Swedish servant girls, Clara Strand and Christina Martinson, were seriously wounded on the night of 19th of March 1885. Eliza Shelley was murdered on the night of 6th of May 1885. Irene Cross fell victim to a knife-wielding assailant on the night of 22nd of May, and in August 1885, Clara Dick sustained serious injuries. The crime sparked a lot of racial tension, many African-American men were arrested but let go eventually, as they could provide an alibi. The newspapers at the time did their part in further fanning the flames and by telling the people of Austin to be vigilant, as the police department was clearly not capable of protecting them. And that's pretty much where we left off last week. This week we will tell you about other victims of the ex-murderer and we will discuss some of the theories of who might have been the culprit. Yeah. So just like last week, our biggest source was J.R. Galloway's book, The Servant Girl Murders, and the accompanying webpage, which is servantgirlmurders.com. Very informative. Also, a quick content note for today, we are going to be talking about sexual assault and also the sexual assault and murder of a minor. So if that's a problem for you, you may want to skip ahead a bit. It's the only death of a minor in this case. And we're not going to... It's awful. This is all... It's all awful. Okay, here we go. Mary Ramey was born sometime in 1875 in Austin, Texas. We don't know the exact date. As we mentioned last week, it was not uncommon for black people to not have a birth certificate. So in the census, we only see about 1875. So that's what we know. She was the third child of Rebecca and Jacob Ramey. Her older siblings were Edward, who was born in 1869. So he was six years older than Mary. And also a sister, Mima, also called Minnie. She was born in 1871, so she was four years older than Mary. Unfortunately, Mary would never know her father. He died seven months before she was born. According to some sources, he died of a heart attack. And what is definitely worth mentioning is he was an incredibly well-liked and well-respected man. We found two newspaper articles, just snippets really, but they mention his death. And one was posted on his Find a Grave page. Unfortunately, it didn't list the newspaper it came from, but it was probably the Austin American Statesman, which is by far the most popular newspaper at that time and place. So this article says, quote, Death of Jacob Rainey. Tuesday, this well-known and esteemed freed man departed this life aged 44 years. Jake has been a resident of this city for many years, and when a slave, was regarded as an honest and incorruptible servant. 
Since he became free, we know that he has demeaned himself in the most exemplary manner, and his loss is sincerely regretted by all classes of our citizens. End quote. And then there's another piece, which is definitely from the Austin American Statesman. This is from 28th of May, 1874, page 3. Quote, the funeral cortege which attended the remains of Jacob Ramey to the city cemetery yesterday was very large and imposing. He was held in high esteem by all classes of our people, both black and white. End quote. So, clearly, a very highly regarded man mm. in his community. And so poor Rebecca has now lost her husband, and that's young, 44. I mean, I know that's, for the time, that's still, still young. And poor Rebecca is now a widow and a single mother to three children. And for sure, Rebecca, who was also called Becky, had lived through really, really difficult times. She had been born in 1840 in Virginia, so she was born into slavery. After the death of her husband, Rebecca moved in with her brother, Edward Carrington, and her mother, Harriet Carrington. So three grown-ups and three children lived in their house on East Pecan Street. They not only lived there, they also worked there. Uncle Edward had founded the Carrington Grocery Store in 1872, which was one of the first Black-owned businesses in Austin. These were very hardworking and successful people. This is an article from spectrallocalnews.com. Quote, E.H. Carrington, former slave and entrepreneur, some of Austin's first businesses and major accomplishments were results of hard work done by the African-American community, including a successful grocery store from the 1800s. Edward H. Carrington was born on September 27, 1847, in Virginia, to Leonidas Davis Carrington and Harriet Russ. Carrington and his parents were slaves in Virginia, and after emancipation, the family moved to Austin. In 1872, Carrington opened a grocery store called the E.H. Carrington Store. The business was located at 522 East 6th Street. He operated the store until 1907, when his son-in-law, Louis D. Lyons, took over. Carrington was considered a community leader and often loaned money to poor farming families. Additionally, he worked with the Friends in Need Fund to help cover funeral expenses for the needy. In 1900, Carrington attended the Austin Emancipation Day picnic, and he was known as being the first African-American in Austin to sign a deed for his own property. The E.H. Carrington Store building was still standing on 6th Street in Austin in the early 21st century and had undergone several renovations. In the early 1970s, the Junior League of Austin restored the building and used it for a thrift shop. In 2002, a conglomerate called the Carrington Group purchased it. Carrington was considered a pillar of the African-American community in Austin throughout his life. Carrington died in Austin on May 17, 1919. End quote. What a absolute fascinating life history. I just found that so impressive. And, you know... I think part of it is there were lots of people who were as talented and generous and kind as Carrington was coming out of slavery as freed people. But what must have happened, you know, just the right amount of luck and chance and encounters with the right people, right? And it's just fascinating. But he sounds like a really impressive man. 
At some point, Rebecca had moved out of the family home, and she took up employment at the home of a Mr. Weed on Cedar Street, which is now 4th Street, and she worked there as a servant. As far as we understand, only Mary lived with her at Cedar Street. We assume the older children stayed with their uncle and grandmother, or even more likely they were already employed somewhere and maybe living independently. Mima would have been 15 at the time, and Edward 16 or 17. Also, there was maybe not so much space in Rebecca's new quarters. The newspaper later stated that she and Mary slept in the kitchen, which was situated outside of the main house in a cabin. Back in the day, kitchens weren't usually part of the main house, were they? There'd be a separate building, so it wasn't so hot in the summer. Because of the fire hazard. Fire hazard, exactly. So, in the early morning hours of the 30th of August, 1885, which was a Sunday, somewhere between 4 and 5 a.m., Someone broke into the home of V.O. Woods and entered the kitchen. Rebecca and Mary were fast asleep, and the intruder hit both, Rebecca and Mary, over the head with a sharp instrument, and then he dragged 11-year-old Mary out to the wash house, where he raped her and then murdered her by inserting sharp metal objects into her ears and driving them into her brain. Mary was apparently still alive, but barely, when she was found in the wash house. These are some of the witness testimonies as reported in the Austin American Statesman. This is from the 1st of September, 1885, a Tuesday, page 4. Quote, An atrocious crime. Mary Ramey, a colored child, taken from her bed, ravished, and then killed. Rebecca Ramey, sandbagged nearly to death one of the most horrible occurrences on record. Becky states that she went to bed Saturday night at 9 o'clock and heard the clock strike 10 and 11, and after this she remembered nothing more, until aroused by the physicians. She said that she didn't recognize the person who committed the awful deed, in fact that she was asleep when the attack was made and didn't know what had happened until the doctors came to examine her wounds. Justice Purnell was summoned to the scene of the horrible atrocities Sunday. He impaneled a jury and obtained the following evidence. Mr. V. O. Weed, being duly sworn, says, About five this Sunday a.m. I heard a noise out in the yard and asked my wife what was there, and she said it was a dog howling, but I told her it was an unnatural sound, and I sprang up and went on the back gallery with a lamp in my hand. I then heard a noise in my kitchen. It growing worse, I called to my wife that there was something wrong and I got my gun. She and I came together on the gallery and found the kitchen door locked. I called Becky repeatedly, but received no answer. I then went to the door of the kitchen and heard a noise in the cabin and told Lockbrush to hold the lamp, and then I pushed the kitchen door open and asked the woman, Becky Ramey, what was the matter. She replied, I don't know. I'm sick. I then turned and hollered to William Jacqua and told him that I thought my two servants were murdered, that one was in the kitchen and the other was missing. I am satisfied that the noise I heard was from a person. As soon as Jacqua arrived, I got my jacket and took the lamp, and then went into the cabin and found the girl dying. I then went for John Cheneville and his hounds, and then awoke Mr. Wilson and told him to bring his hounds as Cheneville was waiting for them. When I came back, Dr. Swearingen had arrived. Dr. Swearingen, Mr. Jacquois, and myself went into the cabin and found the girl in a dying condition, 
with a small quantity of blood under her head. There was only a small quantity of blood on the floor near the girl when I first saw her, but when I returned, the quantity had increased to five or ten times more than there was at first. It is my opinion that she had been injured not over half an hour when I first saw her. Rebecca Ramey had no men going to see her, and I think her a good and virtuous woman. The girl Mary was about 11 years of age. Dr. Johnson, being sworn, says, I was called this morning before day by Mr. Weed, he stating that both of his servants had been attacked and would die, that he wanted me to come up as quick as I could. I found Dr. Swearingen there, and we examined the wounds of both mother and daughter. The mother was in the kitchen, and the daughter was in the wash house. We examined the girl first, as she was still alive. The girl was evidently struck by some sharp instrument in both ears, and we probed the ear and found the wounds were deep, cutting a portion of her ears. She had been ravished and considerably torn. She had evidently been struck with a sandbag or something of that kind, after which she had been ravished and killed. We then examined the mother. She had not been ravished, but had been struck and stunned the same way as the girl, and had two cuts on the left side of her head. I think that the skull is fractured. The girl lived about one hour after I arrived. End quote. So that's awful. I will say I'm, I'm very, very impressed with the efforts made by the employer mm. of Becky and Mary. Like he rounded up all all the people immediately. Yeah, these these were people to him. These weren't this this wasn't property. Yeah. This was he wasn't fucking around. He really wanted to find who hurt these women that he cared for. I mean he he cared for these people who worked for him. Yeah. Yeah. So just like with the other cases, they did make arrests after the murder, but they couldn't find the true culprit. Mary was laid to rest at the Oakwood Cemetery where her father was buried as well. Her brother Edward would follow soon after, so this is a little bit of a sidebar, but we had to mention it, because unfortunately Edward died in 1888 in a terrible electrocution accident. This is from the Austin American Statesman, 28th of August, 1888, page 3. Quote, Deadly Electricity Yesterday about noon, Edmund Ramey, a colored porter at Mr. John B. Neff's Iron Front Saloon, was sent upstairs to wash the rear windows. The second story of the building extends back about 80 feet, while the lower one, in which is the billiard hall, runs through to the alley near the Driscoll Hotel. Ramey, on going upstairs, went out on the roof of the billiard hall with a small stepladder and proceeded to wash the window glass. He was gone some time. In fact, much longer than was necessary to accomplish the task he was detailed to do. And, his services being needed downstairs, another porter in the establishment was sent for him. He went upstairs, and going out on the roof of the billiard hall, was astounded and horrified at finding Ramey lying on the roof stone dead but still warm. He gave the alarm, and at once the news spread and an eager crowd was soon gathered on the premises all eager to see the victim and hear the particulars of the electric tragedy, the first serious one to occur in this city. An investigation of the surroundings led to the belief that while Ramey was washing the window through which the electric wire was attached to the fan motor passes, he accidentally touched it and his death was instantaneous. There was no outcry or call for assistance, no struggle, no anything but awful, sure, swift, silent death. 
The death-dealing wire was one of the patent-insulated ones, but the covering had been saturated by the rains, destroying the insulation, and the moment the unfortunate man touched it, his death followed then and there. He either caught or accidentally touched the wire with his right hand, three fingers of which were badly burned, the little one entirely through the bone, and it was left hanging by a small piece of skin. This is very sad, and I can't even begin to comprehend what this, what this family had been through. It's awful. It's too much. One month later, the servant girl and I, he later struck again. This time there would be two people dead in one night, and one of them was a man. Orange Washington was the eldest son of George and Mary Washington, who, like many other former slaves, had come to Texas from Virginia to seek an independent life after the abolition. At first, the family lived in Branham, Texas, uh, that was around 1870, where the Washington family worked on a farm with their four children, and as I said, Orange was the oldest one. Can I just quickly say that reading about this case sent me down kind of a a minor rabbit hole of African-American surnames before and after the abolition. Like, I read a very interesting article on theroot.com. I will link to it in the sources. And I learned that Washington was one of the most popular surnames freed slaves chose for themselves, which mm. I didn't know. It's an incredibly interesting topic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So at one point, Orange moved to Austin, where he worked for a local builder. He lived in a cabin at 2408 Guadalupe Street with his girlfriend, Gracie Vance, who was born in 1865. Uh, actually, she was either his wife or girlfriend. Different newspapers report different things. We checked on Ancestry and couldn't find a whole lot, unfortunately. It doesn't really matter if they were married or not. We just like to be accurate. So I think most likely she was his, what is uh, referred to as common law wife, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that they were living together for a longer time and acted like husband and wife, just not legally married. Sure. Gracie's roots traced back to Tennessee, where her mother had been born in 1842. She had moved to Austin, where she worked as a washerwoman and raised her two children, Gracie and James. On the night of 28th of September, 1885, Gracie and Orange had two guests over to stay for the night, Lucinda Body and Patsy Gibson. I think they were friends of Gracie. Around midnight, an intruder came through the window and attacked Lucinda and Patsy. Lucinda would later testify that she must have been attacked by a sandbag or with a sandbag because she felt it somehow heavy, yet in a way bouncy. Uh, Lucinda also said that she thought that she had recognized the attacker as a man named Dog Woods. The newspaper later said that he might have been Gracie's former boyfriend, but he actually denied that. He said he just knew them as acquaintances. It can be hard to trust newspapers at this time. At any time, yeah. but yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. So Lucinda told the attacker, who th she thought was this man Dog Woods, to stop it, to not attack her. And he kept saying, don't look at me, turn off the lights, don't look at me, I have to kill you. Somehow Lucinda managed to flee. I think she climbed out the window and she ran over to alarm a neighbor. And they alarmed the police. Apparently there was already a phone in one of the houses. They called the police station. And then they went to the cabin to investigate. They found Patsy, barely conscious with wounds on her head. Orange was lying either on the floor or across his bed, and he was dying. He had deep wounds on his head. Soon they realized that Gracie was missing. 
and they found blood on one of the windows and they concluded that she must have been dragged out that window by the intruder. Indeed, they found her 68 meters or 75 yards away from the cabin and she had been dragged not only out of the window, but also over a fence. So that that really... That's a distance. Takes a lot of physical work. It's... Yeah, that definitely tracks to the two two people theory that you hear sometimes. But it could have just been a very big, strong person. Muscular also. person. Yeah. yeah, but that's a that's a distance. She was raped, and her head had been beaten in with a brick that was found nearby. The newspapers reported that nothing was left of her face. In her hands, they found a watch. From the description, I assume it was an open face pocket watch, a silver one on a chain because it says that it was somehow entangled around her arm, and the watch was believed to belong to the attacker. They also found a horse hitched to a tree near the cabin. The owner of the horse could be determined, but he swore that his horse had been stolen shortly before. And I find it interesting that in the previous attacks, the ones we talked about last week, I found no mention of sexual assault on the victims. I think maybe it's considered that the first victim, Molly, had been sexually assaulted, but it's not very clear on that. I wonder if it was just not reported, mm. or if the first sexual assault that is reported on, on Mary Ramey triggered something in the murderer. Yeah, I was wondering the same thing. And now also we finally have attacks with a very similar MO in terms of, you know, kind of a stunning attack and then taking the woman out to a second location nearby yeah. with the sandbagging plus the plus the head trauma and sexual assault. I'm not totally convinced that these are connected to last week's attacks, but the first victim, Molly. Molly. She's the one who was also yeah. dragged outside and found yeah. yeah. I can see that. For connected. sure. Mm. But yeah, it's interesting. Also, the sandbag as the first attack weapon before for the attacker used the axe. It had been mentioned in other incidents as well, definitely in the Mary Ramey murder, mm -hmm. uh, the article that you just read mentioned it as well. At first, it didn't look as if Patsy would recover from her wounds, but eventually she did, as did Lucinda. Dogwoods was arrested, as was another man, an evil chicken thief named Oliver Townsend, and he... I'm sorry that I'm laughing, but <laughs> no, this is the best. He was later referred to in the newspaper as, and I'm not making this up, quote, <sighs> <laughs> the great American chicken lifter. End quote. He's the great American chicken lifter. I feel like this could spawn a whole new category of TikToks. Show us the great American chicken lifter. <laughs> Because of Lucinda's testimony that she had recognized the intruder as Dogwoods, the police thought they finally had the right man. Of course, the citizens of Austin were absolutely ready to lynch the man when the Pinkertons made an observation. And with the Pinkertons, I mean, of course, members of the famous Pinkerton Detective Agency. And I mentioned them in so many episodes, and I know I said it before, it's time for a whole Pinkerton episode. So, of course... As these cases had become extremely notorious, the Pinkertons were sent in to investigate and possibly find the Austin ex-murderer. I, th I think from what I read is they came after the Mary Ramey murder. Mm. And I asked myself, did Uncle Edward hire them? I mean, they were members of the, of the middle class. Or that the community maybe 
like Maybe. pulled money together and hired the Pinkertons to solve this absolutely horrible murder of the young girl. Yeah, it could be. So the Pinkertons, who had been investigating, they had a totally different suspect, even though Lucinda had named Doc, and even though a bloody shirt had been found in Doc's home, Doc Wood stated that the bloody shirt was the result of a chronic disease, and some newspapers referred to it as a venereal disease, so a sexually transmitted disease. I was, of course, very curious, thinking which STD could cause a bloody shirt, and um, how did you get blood on there, right? So I was thinking when you were coughing up blood, maybe, like from a severe lung infection. And apparently chlamydia could cause inflammation of the lungs. So, I mean, that's a possibility. What do you think, Annie? I think my first thought would be like tuberculosis or mm. maybe nasal syphilis, like as we saw in the Nick. That show really did cover all manner of medical mm. horrors, didn't it? I don't think there's really enough to guess what blood on a bloody shirt came from at that time, but I think syphilis would be more like your your standard pneumonia. I don't think it's a coughing up blood kind of, I don't think it's a hemorrhagic really situation. I just think people also didn't know, like would they have thought that tuberculosis was sexually transmitted because you could get it that way, you know? Possible, yeah, maybe. I mean... Oh, and the watch in Grace's hand, it turned out it belonged to a Swedish girl who had been burglarized one of those nights. It looked as if Gracie had gotten a hold of the watch when she was struggling with the intruder. So at least we can assume that the murder of Gracie and Orange did at least break into another house, probably more. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Ultimately, after several months, they somehow proved that Doc and Oliver did have alibis and that the blood on Doc Wood's shirt was indeed his own blood. And I wonder how exactly did they prove that? Yeah. I think there wasn't even the possibility. 1885 might have been just about when they started to be able to distinguish between human and animal blood. Maybe. I think it wasn't even quite there yeah. yet, if I remember correctly. No, I think someone must have witnessed Doc have a nosebleed or you know, cough and spew blood everywhere while wearing that shirt. I think that's the only thing. If they proved that the blood on the Doc, on Doc Wood's shirt was his blood, I think someone had to have been like, oh, I was there when he had that note, you know? Because otherwise it's just... mm. Impossible. But the watch being stolen from a Swedish girl that was burglarized does tie back to last week. And... I mean, I didn't really read if it was the same Swedish girls that the servants no. that the watch was stolen there, or I I missed it somehow. I think I didn't read it, but that's also the kind of connection I made. Yeah, it's almost, it reminds me a little bit of the Golden State Killer, because before he was the Golden State Killer, he was the Vesalia Ransacker. Like, he didn't start out as what he evolved to, right? He started out as a peeping Tom. And then after a peeping Tom, he would sneak in and steal little things when no one was home. Then when people were home, then he started attacking people. Then he started, you know what I mean? It it just escalated. So there's there's that element here, I think, too, right? Maybe. All right. So we told you last week that in this one year, the Austin Axe murder was active. Authorities questioned more than 400 men. They arrested a whole bunch of them. That's a technical term, mathematically speaking. (laughs) But ultimately, they had to let everyone go. And the people of Austin had really lost all trust in their police force. I read in the book by 
Mr. Galloway, he, he included an article from the time that the Austin police force consisted of one marshal, one sergeant, and 12 police officers, which is 14 men for roughly 12,000 people. I don't think that can be correct, can it? That must be for one district of the city, maybe? Because if it is for whole Austin, I do understand why the police was struggling with all the crime being rampant in the city. And even if it's just for a part of Austin, that's too little police. Yeah, one thing that I wondered when you were when we were talking earlier about the Pinkertons and like who was responsible for hiring the Pinkertons, my first thought would actually be some of the prosperous black families in town because I wonder if the police really because up until this point we mostly had African American black girls that mm. were being attacked and so without the without risking sounding, you know, I just I just fear that that would be an issue. I would assume that would be an issue everywhere, you know, really, not not speaking badly of Austin specifically. You know what I mean? I just... But I also have to say, I mean, they tried 400 men, questioned 400 men, and they did arrest, yeah. Well, and especially if Pinkertons were brought in, then they would have, that would have forced their hand, right? Like, they can't be upstaged either. It's not enough police for that many people. I mean, I really hope I read that wrong because 14 men for 12,000 people, that That's can't not, be right. yeah. And I think it's safe to say that people of color would not have been a priority case until there were quite a few. Yeah. All right, let's get to our last two known victims of the, quote, servant girl annihilator. And this time, so shocking for the press, the victims were white. And they died on the same night on Christmas Eve, 1885, but not in the same house. And I wish I was being tongue-in-cheek when saying that the press was like, oh my god. But this is one of the headlines. This is from the Austin American Statesman, 26th of December, 1885, which was a Saturday. This is page 8. Quote, Blood, blood, blood. Last night's horrible butchery. The demons have transferred their thirst for blood to white people. End quote. Dun-dun-dun. Bum-bum-bum. Let's talk about the first victim of the night, Susan Hancock. Susan was born Susan Clementine Skaggs on the 27th of December, 1840, in Alabama. I read somewhere that she had a twin sister, Martha, and also a brother named William. In 1868, she married a man named Moses H. Hancock. He was born on the 28th of January, 1823, possibly in North Carolina. He moved to Texas sometime in the 1850s or 1860s. We know he was living in Bonham, Texas, where he worked as a carpenter. Moses had served during the Civil War in Howell's Battery and the 11th Texas Field Artillery. All right, so as I said, Susan and Moses married in 1868. They were living in Texas, where their daughter Lena was born in 1870. After the Civil War, Moses had returned to earning a living as a carpenter. The 1880 census shows that the family had moved to Waco, and I think they had another daughter named Ida, but we couldn't really find anything on her. On Find a Grave and Ancestry, there was only Lena listed as their child, which is strange because later on the newspaper articles clearly all speak of two teenage daughters, Lena and Ida. After Waco, the family moved to San Antonio, but then moved to Austin soon after, which makes absolute sense because remember Austin was a booming city which meant lots of work for a skilled carpenter 
And indeed, the Hancocks did well. They were even able to purchase their own home on East Water Street in the southern part of the city. And as you might have guessed it, Water Street has its name because it lies just north of the Colorado River. Okay, so it's December 24th, Christmas Eve, 1885. Lena and Ida are out at a Christmas party. Moses and Susan are at home. They'd already gone to bed. By the way, Susan, in her 40s, was described as being very educated. She read a lot. She was described as eloquent and very good-looking. Susan is sleeping in the bed of one of her daughters. Um, I absolutely think that this was a tactic so they would know when the girls came home. This is Mm. 1,000% something my mom would have done. Like, moms are gonna mom, (laughs) right? So, around midnight, an intruder enters through a window and strikes Susan over the head and drags her out the window and into the backyard. At approximately midnight, Hancock was awakened by the sound of moans. And of course, with everything going on in Austin, he immediately gets up and he goes to check on his wife, but he finds the bed where she had gone to sleep empty. And not only was the bed empty, there was blood on the sheets. Tracing the trail of blood outside, along the house, and into the backyard, he caught a glimpse of what seemed like a figure leaping over the fence. Moses Hancock must have scared the attacker off, but it was too late. There, in the backyard, he discovered Susan, barely clinging to life, laying in a pool of blood. The attacker had brutally struck her face and head with an axe, which was left behind at the scene. Susan suffered a cut across her left ear, a wound above her left eye, a lacerated cheekbone, and two fractures to her skull. The perpetrator had also forcefully stabbed her ear with a lengthy, sharp object penetrating two inches into her brain. This is very specifically like Mary Remy. Like, this is totally the same MO. Has to be. That's the thing. I keep thinking him as, like, the knitting needle guy. Or, Mm. do you know what I mean? Just a long... Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only thing we don't know is if she had also been sexually assaulted. The doctors who examined the body didn't want to give this information to reporters. But it seems possible that the attacker was interrupted before he could rape her when Moses scared him off. And we can also assume that the annihilator was angry about being scared off regardless as to where he was in his attack. It's also possible that he did rape Susan, but his need to kill was ramping up. and one assault a night wasn't enough for him anymore, right? We see that. I mean, Bundy at the at the sorority house, right? You can... This is not something... Check the Reaper also did that once, exactly. twice, yeah. twice a night, yeah, when he was disturbed. That's right. So he goes looking for another victim. That's when I think things really do get scary, isn't it? Because they're out of control then. I mean, they're already out of control because they're murdering people and they're assaulting people. But then... When it's almost like they don't have any self-control over themselves anymore, that's when it starts to get scarier. He absolutely escalated. Yeah. 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 So he's out looking for another victim, and he finds it in Eula Phillips, 12 blocks away on West Hickory Street. So Eula Phillips was born Eula Burdett on April 22nd, 1868 in Texas. She was the daughter of Thomas and Alice Burdett. The Burdetts belonged to a family of early settlers in Travis County, where they lived as farmers and ranchers. By 1880, Thomas and Alice had separated. Thomas resided and worked on his brother Giles Burdett's farm, 
while Alice and the girls relocated to southern Travis County near Onion Creek. Alice took up teaching in order to support herself and her children. In late 1882, she filed for divorce from Thomas, but tragically she passed away before the case could be tried, probably due to a typhoid epidemic in the Onion Creek area, but she was only 36 years old when she died. Less than a month following her mother's death, 14-year-old Eula marries James Phillips Jr., who was 21 years old at the time. Really, we can only imagine how traumatizing and upsetting all of these things were on a 14-year-old girl to go through. Mm. So her parents are separated, she moves away, her mother dies way too young, and then she's immediately married at the age of 14 and suddenly responsible for a household of her own. Not unusual the time, you know, for the time, but also doesn't mean that it didn't suck. I mean... Very traumatic, yeah. You know, just because something happened, just because something was the norm, doesn't mean it wasn't traumatic for everyone it happened to, right? Another thing that put stress on the young couple, James and Eula didn't really have the money to live on their own in their own house. So... She's 14, and she's marrying a 21-year-old who lives with his mom and dad. They were really, I think they were rather a wealthy family in Austin. Yeah, it seems like. So they're living in the house with James's parents, and James Sr. is a carpenter and architect and builder, and that's where he also had his business. And I think you're right, I think they probably were fairly well off. In January 1884, Eula gave birth to a baby boy that she named Thomas after her father. In January 1885, James and Eula relocated to the farm of George McCutcheon and his family in Williamson County. He was a friend of Eula's father's and offered steady work to James. It does look like, unfortunately, McCutcheon's wife passed away that March, and it seems possible that Eula and George may have had an affair. In October 1885, James and Eula returned to Austin, and once again were living with James's parents. During this time, Eula was not happy. She would sometimes sleep in the parlor, and James battled unemployment and sort of didn't love the fact that he suspected his wife of extramarital affairs. Their marriage was not great. Eula engaged then in a less discreet affair with John Dickinson. Now, he was a 27-year-old single man of both wealth and influence, serving as the secretary of the Capitol Commission, overseeing the construction of the Capitol building. I think Eula may have even left James for a while while she was with him. And there's a lot of talk in the information and the literature about Eula and her many, many affairs. And to be honest, at first, I was like, wow, Eula really gets around. And I wasn't really judging, but maybe, to be to be fair, like, casting a little shade. And then I was like, wait, she was married at 14 because marriage and sex mean safety. Also, in the show we mentioned uh, a little bit later, there's an interview with the, uh, let me see, it was the great-niece of Eula. So this person's grandmother was Eula's sister. sister. Yeah. and. There's an interview with her, and she talks about how um, James was drinking and not treating Eula very well. Right. Let's let's keep it at this. Yeah. yeah. And that's never the narrative. So I can totally understand that she was looking for for happiness and happiness in her life. She was such a young woman. Of course. Yeah. yeah. 
It's just the narrative is always like, oh, look at this woman running around. Like, let's not take any look at... Anyway. So, Eula was often a guest in these assignation houses, which were private residences where you could rent a room for an hour or two. They were sort of for discreet romantic encounters with confidentiality, like the upscale version of a motel that runs by the hour, sort of. So Eula was a guest in these houses, and we'll get into it more later, but we we just, we need to talk about what happened to Eula. So on Christmas Eve, 24th of December, an hour after the attack on Susan Hancock. So this is, this this attacker is in a frenzy. And the murderer strikes once more. And this is from the Austin American Statesman, 26th of December, 1885, page 8. Quote, Last night, Mr. Phillips and his wife and little child retired to bed as usual. Sometime past midnight, the household were awakened and their attention attracted by Mr. Phillips Jr. calling for someone. The door of the room, which opened out on the covered veranda, was found open. On entering, Phillips was found weltering in blood. The pillows and bedclothes presented a horrid spectacle, being literally saturated with blood, and the sheets reddened with gore. Phillips lay on his right side with a deep wound just above the ear, made with an axe which lay beside the bed. Mrs. Phillips was not there, but her child remained all besmeared with blood, but unharmed. Search was immediately instituted for the missing woman. A trail of blood still fresh on the floor of the outside veranda was followed out into the yard, and in the northern part of the enclosure, a few feet from the fence and at the door to the water closet, Mrs. Phillips was found dead. The body was entirely nude, and a piece of timber was laid across the bosom and arms, and evidently used for the most hellish and damnable of purposes. The hands were outstretched, and a great pool of blood, still warm and scarcely coagulated, stood in a little trench, into which the life current had flowed down from the unfortunate victim. The body had been dragged from the room, but whether Mrs. Phillips was killed in the room, or, as the elder Mr. Phillips thinks, she was awakened by the assault on her husband and attempted to escape, cannot be determined. It is believed, however, the assassin stifled her voice and that she was still alive when dragged into the yard where she was outraged and then the last and fatal blow delivered. The position of the body indicated that the devilish act was perpetrated by the assistance of a second party as both hands were held down by pieces of wood in which positions the fiends left their victim and which she must have died. The elder Phillips stated that while this most horrible crime was being committed, everything was silent as usual. No outcry seems to have been heard, so skillfully did the inhuman butcher or butchers carry out a crime worthy of the imps of hell. Phillips, the wounded man, was seen a short time after this awful and infernal crime. A physician was present and had given him a soothing potion, but stated he had not investigated the wound and could not say whether the skull was fractured or not. When asked if he knew who struck him, Mr. Phillips deeply groaned and said he did not. It is believed his wound is serious, if not fatal. The wound of his dead wife was also in the head, and evidently with the same axe with which he had been struck. At the late hour at which this is written, it is impossible to give the full details of this appalling assassination. 
end quote. So what's interesting to note here is that there were witnesses who testified that Eula showed up at one of the assignation houses only an hour or so before her murder, accompanied by an unknown man. This is interesting because James testified that they had gone to bed early and he and Eula were sleeping in the same bed with their infant between them, and he only awoke when he was attacked with the axe. So did Eula slip out of bed when James fell asleep and then get back before her death, or... Did the witnesses placing her at the establishment confuse her or get the wrong day? It's a little bit weird there, but Mm -hmm. awful, awful. So Eula was dead and James was severely injured. Uh, Susan was barely alive and would die a couple of days later. By the way, James would recover. And I honestly find it amazing how many people recovered in this case from severe blows to the head, Mm. some of them with an axe. I mean, I'm absolutely sure that they would suffer from consequences from these wounds for the rest of their lives, and we don't even need to talk about all the trauma, the emotional trauma they have gone through. But still, it's amazing that in 1885 in Texas, so many people did survive explosives to the head. That's that's some resilience there. It is. My my, you know, my late husband died because of a head injury ultimately, and Mm. so I'm constantly amazed by things that people have survived, you know, like his seemed such a minor, not minor, but you know what I mean. And and you'll see these things and it's just like, wow. Yeah. And we have all the modern technology available nowadays, but back then. You just had to hope for the best that infection didn't get you and awful. All right. So now who were the first suspects in the Susan Hancock and the Eula Phillips murders? Well, in Susan's case, that would be her husband, Moses. Apparently, they had found a letter in Susan's belongings, a letter that she had written to Moses, but she never sent it to him. And the letter read, quote, Dear husband, I have lived with you 18 years and have always tried to make you a good wife and help you all I could. I have loved you and followed you day and night. You won't quit whiskey and I am so nervous I can't stand it. You know it. It almost kills me for you to drink and Lena is almost crazy and will lose her mind. If I was to do anything to disgrace you and our children, you would leave me. You would have quit me long ago. Take good care of yourself. Write to me at Waco and I will answer every letter. Your wife until death, Sue Hancock. End quote. That's really sad. So, of course, the theory was that Moses had found out that his wife wanted to leave him and therefore had murdered her in a a fit of rage. Mm -hmm. He was tried, but the trial ended with a hung jury. Ultimately, they couldn't prove that he was indeed the culprit. And honestly, I think it's highly unlikely that he did it. Yeah. I mean, we have two murders, same MO, one hour apart. How high are the chances? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. Now... I think he's probably very, very lucky that there were so many other attacks, because if it had just been that, then for sure he would have been looked at. But there was just too much else going on that he couldn't have been. Where was it? I heard that um, that the police at the time never really connected these two cases that happened the same night, one hour apart, 12 blocks away. Wow. Only the, the newspaper and the, you know, the people of Austin, they made this connection, but the police really didn't see it. Hmm. I think they were just eager to try anyone yeah. at that point. Yeah, yeah, they were desperate to find a solution. As I said, he he didn't get sentenced in the trial. He was let go, and after his wife's death and him being a suspect for quite a while, 
He started drinking even more than before he moved in with his older daughter, Lena, who took care of him until his death in 1919 at the age of 89. Now, Lena must have been a really cool, strong woman. You can find some info on her on servantgoldmurders.com. She didn't have an easy life, but absolutely persevered. Yeah. One fact about her, though, that I will mention, she absolutely loved, loved, loved dogs and all the other animals. She always had several big dogs living with her, <laughs> and she also had a very feisty parrot, apparently. Now, about Eula's murder, I think it was pretty clear that her husband James wasn't the one who had murdered her because of his severe head injuries. You'd think so, but he was actually tried for murder of his wife Eula, so poor James was recovering from his wounds, and in the meantime, the police did hear some of the rather scandalous gossip concerning Eula and her affairs, which led the police to believe that James had murdered Eula because of jealousy. Of course, this theory is quite a bit implausible, as it would require him to inflict the wounds on his own face and head to feign an attack by another assailant, right? Yeah. I mean, it's possible, but how likely is that? It's happened before, but yeah. Such severe wounds, I don't know. It's pretty tough. So James was arrested on January 1st, 1886. That was just a couple of days after the murder. During yeah. his trial, the most condemning evidence was that he had stated one time that he would kill Eula if she would ever cheat on him. The prosecution also brought another piece of evidence, a floorboard they had cut out of the Phillips home with a bloody footprint of a bare foot. The print was interesting because it was mentioned that there was some form of abnormality in the toe area. And they did compare the print to James' foot and it didn't match. Nevertheless, he was found guilty, but the conviction was later overturned on appeal due to insufficient evidence. Thank goodness. So Susan Hancock and Eula Phillips were the last known victims of the killer. He just stopped after that and ultimately the identity of the Austin ex-murderer remains a mystery. Or how many call him the Austin servant girl annihilator? And we told you last week that the name is not really fitting, as not all of the victims were actually made. Also, it's, I mean, Annie said it, it's kind of problematic, because don't you have the feeling by calling him, him the um, servant girl annihilator back then, it's kind of, I don't know how to say it, it's like, well, it's just servants. It lumps them into a class of people who don't yeah. matter so much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's classist. It's classist. It's very classist. Yeah. I mean, it's different times. And what's interesting is the term was coined by William Sidney Porter. And you people out there might know him under his pseudonym, O. Henry, who wrote many short stories. Yeah. For example, The Gift of the Magi, which I read for our patrons for Christmas one time. Yes, that's true. So he was living in Austin at the time of the murders, and he had used the term in a letter he had written to a friend, quote, the town is fearfully dull, except for the frequent raids of the servant girl annihilators who make things lively in the dull hours of the night. End quote. Um, I don't love that vibe. Like, No, absolutely not. It's hmm. Wow, it would be boring here. Well, everything here is so dull, except for when women get murdered brutally. Yeah. Thank goodness these women keep getting attacked. Otherwise, it would be boring as hell around here. 
So now, as with every good mystery, there are a bunch of theories uh, on who actually did it, and we want to discuss the more popular ones, shall we? So we already mentioned it last week, some people, especially at the time, believed that the Annihilator had boarded a ship and gone to London, where he continued his murder spree under a pseudonym. Jack the Ripper. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. And I can see how people at the time would maybe think that. But first of all, how, how likely is that two such infamous serial killers being the same person? And also nowadays we know about something like MO and it just doesn't fit like at all. Completely different. Not even yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And... Every time there's someone and they're like, and then they think he got away because he went to London where he became Jack the Ripper, of course. <laughs> no, I think people just don't like to think about how many killers are mm. out there among us at any given time, all the time. They're like sharks. They're always there without us realizing. And the odds are really actually very low that you'll be a victim. But they're not zero. And I think that is a really uncomfortable truth. And people just want to assume that, no, there couldn't be, there couldn't be four or five people responsible for yeah. all these crimes. It's one person who did them all, then left and went to another continent. That's what happened. It's like a, doing a world tour. Yeah. I think it's wishful thinking 99.9% mm. .9 of the time when someone's like, and then they left the continent and went to, became Jack the Ripper, became the New Orleans Axeman, became, whatever it is. It's just, yeah. it's wishful thinking. I think another reason why Jack the Ripper is named in connection with these murders is a Malaysian cook named Maurice. And I honestly think, and I think any of you agree, this theory is pure, absolute lore. Uh, but mm -hmm. here it goes. Maurice, never any last name given, which is already a red flag for these kind of things. A Malaysian cook. Cue the Steve Miller band running through <laughs> my head for the rest of the day. So he's a Malaysian cook and he worked at the Pearl House in downtown Austin. And apparently the Pearl House was a hotel at the time. And I tried to find info on it. I couldn't find Pearl House Hotel Austin in any other sources than the ones that talked about this Maurice guy in connection with the murder. There is a Pearl Street in Austin, or there was, or is, I'm not quite sure. And there is a haunted inn on Pearl Street, but that one seems to have been built in 1896. Uh, so you see another red flag. I'm extremely suspicious about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. As you should be. Pearl House had connections to many victims of the Annihilator in one way or another, like them being guests or them working there. And they think that Maurice the Cook is the common denominator. He had seen the victims at the Pearl House, stalked them back to their home and murdered them. But of course, in 1886, Maurice left Austin. At first, he went to New Orleans. And wouldn't it be kind of creepy if the New Orleans X-Men would have been active between 1886 and 1888? Yeah, that's a link we could get behind. After New Orleans, Maurice went to London, of course. And I think we can all agree it's a... I don't want to call it fun little lore, but uh, interesting little lore or creepy little lore, but it's absolute hogwash. Uh, agreed. <laughs> I think agreed. the most likely suspect came from the PBS TV show History Detectives from an episode that aired on 15th of July 2014. Thank you, Doug, for the link. 
If anyone is looking for the exact episode, it's season 11, episode 3. We'll have the link in our sources. Yeah, that was great. I love it when, hey, Doug, shout out. He's a regular. We chat a lot. I'm super behind on all of our, our chattiness. But he was like, don't forget this one. And I was like, yeah, we've already, we've got it. So the show used a combination of historical research and modern techniques such as psychological and, which is fascinating, geographic profiling. The show's investigators were actually able to pinpoint their number one suspect and his name, Nathan Elgin. And he was a 19-year-old African-American cook. Now, I really urge you to go watch the episode of History Detectives. It's really, really interesting. For example, they mark all of the crime scenes on a map of Austin of the, of the 1880s, and then they ran it through a program, and the algorithm told them the likeliness of certain areas of being connected to the killer, like the home of the killer or something like that. They also went through newspaper archives and they found an article in a San Antonio newspaper from 1886 that talks about the James Phillips trial. But that wasn't the most important info for them because they already knew all of that. But the article also mentions the name of a suspect who had been shot not long ago when he tried to attack a woman in a saloon and he was shot by the police. The name of the dead assailant was Nathan Elgin. And he was considered a suspect already at the trial or at the time of the trial because he was already known for assaulting women, but also because during autopsy they realized that his footprint was matching the crime scene of the murder of Mary Ramey. And his foot did show an irregularity in the toe area that would fit also the print at the Phillips house. Nathan Elgin was missing a toe. But there's more. Elgin was working as a cook at a high-end restaurant in Austin at Simon's Restaurant on Congress Avenue. And that address was in the area that was deemed to be the most likely home of the killer by the computer. Home or somehow else connected to the murder, so possible place of work, right? Where he spent a lot of time. Exactly. Yeah. Also, the killings all of a sudden stopped after Elgin was shot. And now we're coming full closure. The people of the show kept sleuthing because they wanted to see if somebody else had made the connections between Nathan Elgin and the murders. And there was another person, James R. Galloway. On his webpage, he offered an in-depth analysis of why he thinks Elgin could indeed be the ex-murderer. And I can only say, please go read it. And well done. Bravo, Mr. Galloway. This is so fascinating. And while we will never really know who did it, I do think that they have a really strong case against Nathan Elgin. What do you think? I think so, too. Absolutely. It's always a little bit tricky because you know that these shows, that's what they're setting out to prove, right? So it's coming at you from a bias. But the information that they have is so compelling, I think. Do we think all the attacks were committed by the same person? I know we keep coming back to this, but I think Molly was. I think Molly was. Irene, possibly. It's confusing that sh she was described as looking as if somebody tried to scalp her, which is right. different from all the other ones. I agree. Also, she was the one who wasn't dragged out. And then all the ones from today. I don't see the Swedish girls connected unless they mean that the pocket watch came from one of the Swedish girls. And that's the only connection because they were attacked with a revolver. Right. So that's that the only weird. thing I can think of that they, but it just seems weird that it doesn't say that specifically, unless we missed it. 
If if yeah. we just missed that, some one of our listeners will know. Someone always yeah. knows. Like, what's the situation there? Was it just another one at the same time? Also, Clara Dick doesn't fit in for me. She and her mother both testified that it was her husband who attacked her. And also, why would the attacker try to grab the baby first? All the other times he had never harmed toddlers or little children who were present. He did attack Mary Ramey, but uh, she was a little bit older and she was a girl, prepubescent girl. Exactly. Yeah. I agree. I don't think that that one makes sense. This is a really interesting one. You know what it really reminds me of are all the axe murders that we found when we were looking at the Velisca axe murders, remember? Yeah. There were just so many axe murders at the time. And it was like, hang on, is there a serial killer? Because this is, this, it's just a lot. And there wasn't the kind of communication networks available for law enforcement to even determine. I mean, we, yeah. we can only speculate how many... I mean, they didn't even have a term for that at the time. No. Serial killer as, as a concept was coined way later. Of course. They're incredibly sad cases, just savage mm. and, and terrifying. Terrifying. The idea of someone sneaking in in the middle of the night and dragging you out of your house after attacking your husband. I'm still thinking were there more attackers, more than one, because he attacked not just women who were alone or with children. He attacked women who were at home with their husbands, their boyfriends. He attacked four That's people yeah. at once. I mean, yeah. even if you wait until they're sleeping, how high are the chances that you can hit four people in a row in the head and nobody can kind of right. get away? And what was the implication of the the planks across? Mm. Was somebody stepping on them to keep her from moving her hands or pressing down on them? Apparently, yeah was used to hold her down. Right. And dragging someone for, what was it, 75 yards, 65 meters over a fence. Yeah, that's a long, that's With a, a very dead weight. long way. A dead weight. This is it. Yeah. If you've ever had to try to transport a drunk friend, it's hard. That's It's real hard to move a, a dead weight. And in some cases, they'd be fighting back. It's a really scary case. It's like Velisca, these murders, the Texarkana murders. New Orleans ex-murderer. The New Orleans ex-murderer. Yeah. There's so many we still have to cover, but it's a lot to think about. I'm looking forward to hearing what our listeners' thoughts are on this case, as always. We have great ideas and thoughts and extra knowledge come from our listeners, so. Do you have something good? Uh, I have so many something goods. I don't know where to start, but let me say this. If you like the geographical profiling, there is a good series of novels by Stephen James, and I think they're called the Patrick Bowers Files. The first, I've only read the first handful of them, which are all named after chess moves like the Rook, the Pawn things like that, but they're about an investigator who is a geographical profiler for like the FBI or something. I need to reread them and catch up with, because there's loads of new ones since I first started reading them, but I remember them really being fun beach reads. And when you mentioned that show with the geographical profiling, that's what this character does. So if you're looking for a beach read. Awesome. How about you? My something good is that last Saturday... Well, I told you last week that Philip was here for vacation and we went to see a musical. 
uh, Elisabeth in front of Schloss Schönbrunn, which was absolutely amazing. I've already watched it last year. I think in total I have seen it uh, six or seven times, twice in front amazing. of Schönbrunn. And Philip also told me, well, it's his favorite musical, and it was so good. And we had such a lovely oh. evening. It was absolutely perfect. Yes, that's my something. Oh, good. I'm so glad. <laughs> oh, that's nice. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, please do us the huge favor. Go to your podcast app and see if you can leave us a rating and or review. Also, on Spotify, you can answer the question apparently uh, under each episode. Did you enjoy this episode? <laughs> so you can write something <laughs> there as well. I love that. And we can we can see it. It doesn't let us respond back, though. No. Like, why can't we reply? That's annoying. But yeah, Spotify, thanks. And IMDb. I think you can leave reviews on IMDb. Yes, also. Oh, also, I want to say thank you to our listener on YouTube, Brandy Jean. You leave such great comments, and we see them all, and we read them, and thank you for it. Thank you for yeah. interacting with our videos. Yes, definitely. And also, we've had we've had some incredibly, like, when I was away, there were a few times where I saw, you know, we get notifications when we get reviews, and I was like, screenshotting Johanna like this is the nicest review I can't even tell you how happy it makes us when when you take the time to leave us a review it just means so much it really does what else voting in the podcast awards go to please 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 podcastawards.com you're going to register by giving them your email and then confirming that yes this is your email and you are not a bot and they we've been doing this for years now and have never had an issue with security. So they're not going to spam you with anything. And so once you confirm your email, you go back and it will list all of the many, many, many potential categories of podcasts that you can nominate. And we are nominated in The People's Choice, History, True Crime, and Female Hosted. And we won Female Hosted and History last year. So we are defending both of those. So just vote. Don't forget to check the check the box. There's a little box that says tick this box. It says something like tick this box if you want to be considered for voting in the final or something like that. Something like but that. But essentially, yeah. yeah, your first vote is just saying these are the podcasts that should get through this nomination period. And then a random selection of people who ticked that box will be selected for the final voting if we make it through. First, we have yep. to actually make it through in these categories, and we'll see if we do or not. There's a lot of excellent, excellent shows nominated, as always, so we'll see how that goes. Patreon, you can go to patreon.com and search Fresh Hell Podcast, and you will find the different levels you can support us with. If you use Podbean as your podcast app, or if you, for example, go to Podbean, Fresh Hell Podcast on Podbean on your browser, you will see a little button that says, uh, I think it says support or or uh, patron or something like this. And it's a program where you can also support us, where you get early access whenever we are capable, which is more often now that we are actually, you know, releasing an episode for our patrons sooner. Things like this, yeah. That's for Podbean users. And we do, we're not going to spoil any surprises, but we have a pretty exciting... 200th episode planned, mm -hmm. sort of episodes 200, 201, 202 are all sort of related and exciting and big. It's a big topic. 
So that's what we're going to discuss at our next Patreon get-together, which will be on the 27th of July. Yes. So mark your calendars. Our murder tier patrons, we have been doing sort of chats lately about different topics and like what our thoughts are and topics that either we've covered and we're just having an after-the-show chat or topics we would never cover, if that makes sense. Exactly. We talked, for example, about John Benet, which we would never do an episode because there no. are so many great episodes from other podcasts out there already. And there really yeah. are. Yeah. Also about Patreon. Uh, next week, I will send out the newest Murder Tier special merch. All of the Murder Tier patrons that are registered now will get it, will receive mm-hmm. it. Also the ones who've been Murder Tier patrons for a longer time already. It's going to change every year, but all the Murder Tiers are always going to get this special item. And yes. yeah, it's going to be on your way next week. Yeah. So starting starting now, what will happen is like each summer we'll come out with a new thing. It'll be good. It'll be good. We have a new merch store. Uh, check that one out. You'll find the link on our webpage, freshhellpodcast.com. Gonna keep adding to it. I just set it up. There's a lot of items already, but just a few designs. But it's fun. It's new designs. It's a little Raven logo with Fresh Hell. I, for example, I have a cap now with Fresh Hell Podcast with a little Raven next to it, a little crow. I love it's that cute. hat. Yeah. <laughs> also a very nice notebook in kind of uh, Art Nouveau style. I love that. I love that design. It's so pretty. It's like Klimt vibes. Yeah. Please remember to send us your fun stories. Like, just let us know. Ghost story, uh, you know, connection to a killer story, whatever it is, you know, and let us know how you want to be known. All right. I think that's it. Please tell all your pets. We said hi. Hug them. Cuddle them. Treat them nicely. Please check them for ticks. I just removed last week eight ticks from Leela and she has such thick hair and it was almost impossible to find them. They were teeny tiny. It's horrible at the moment. It's horrible. It's so gross. Please don't forget, it's still hot in most places. I mean, summer just is beginning, actually. Don't leave them in your car unless you have kind of, you know... Climate control. You can leave the air conditioning running. Don't leave them outside in the sun. Keep them inside. Give them water. Also, water for all the animals, for all the birds, all everyone. Everyone needs water. And be kind to all the animals. Be kind to other humans. And most important of all, be kind to yourself. I know it's hard, but you deserve it. That's true. And if you're going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye. Bye.